focus on the lights or the cool tracks or the cool electric guitar and the drums, but just to focus on you and worshiping you, Father. We thank you that you remind us what it really means to worship you in this place. We pray that this would not just be one experience here tonight, but we'd have a life filled with worship. We would not try to recreate this, Lord, but we would just savor this moment. In Jesus' name, we all said together, amen. If you guys could stay um, standing for the word. So we're going to be going through Acts 8, 26 through 39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian and an Unak, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shire is silent. So he opens not his mouth, and his humiliation justice was denied, denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the Unak said to Philip, But whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as he as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the Unak said, See, here is water. What perverts me, oh, prevents me, sorry, from being baptized. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the Unak, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and Unak saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey, you can have a seat. Turn to your neighbor. Ask them how they're doing. Check in on them. Make sure they're good. Give them a high five. Give them a little fist bump. Thank you, Jeremiah. You're the man. Man, the myth. Hey, can we just give it up for Andrew for faithfully leading us tonight in that beautiful set of worship. I was getting some Coldplay vibes from that. I was loving that. Hey, well, it's good to be here tonight with you. I, I want to begin tonight by doing a little photojournalism, if that's okay with you. So we're going to have a series of images on the screen. But I, I want to introduce to you tonight, if you don't know, uh, the portrait photographer Steve McCurry. We're going to have photos that he has taken since the 80s going behind me. Here's a few photos of his. The thing about Steve McCurry is he blew up in the 80s for photographing and photojournalism, what was going on in the Middle East. He, was, he stepped into circumstances with war, stepped into circumstances with child labor, and would photograph what he saw. And the fascinating thing about his images is they're not just your prototypical war or conflict images. His photos have this way of, of capturing the eye of the viewer in their composition that has this beautiful lighting and these crazy colors. But the interesting thing about his photography is for all the, the beauty and the colors, there's, there's this underlying theme of suffering and, and pain and desperation. 
And in multiple interviews, time and time again, the interviewers are asking Steve McCurry the question of how are you able to put yourself in these dangerous situations to capture these photos? And again and again, McCurry states that his desire to tell a story, to, to tell an untold story specifically, always outweighs the fear in his heart. That no matter what he is stepping into, he is more desperate to tell this story and capture it through images than any kind of fear he is facing, that he's willing to endure the hard circumstances, step into the difficult situation for something a little bit bigger than him. And he's still alive to this day, photographing many different things. But I love this idea of this photojournalist and the images he captures and the dangerous situations he puts himself into and the reality of this passion, that this, this purpose that he's almost serving that's bigger than him. And I believe we can correlate that a lot of the time to our own faith journey. That often, more often than not, when stepping into the unknown of following Jesus, you and I, we will encounter less than ideal circumstances. We will encounter circumstances that maybe pale in comparison to being in the Middle East during wartime. But for you and I, we will endure and go through situations and moments that aren't always cut and clean. And I think of Jesus' words before he left this earth to go into all the nations and make disciples. And specifically, I want to touch on that concept tonight. And the way this shows up in our lives, being faithful to discipleship, doesn't always map out the way we'd want it to. And last week, we, we touched on the story of Rahab. We jumped into our new series, Wonder and Controversy. And the premise of the series is really to encapsulate what does it mean to be used by God. And often, the people in Scripture, these characters we read about, there's two things that mark their lives. The wonder of God working in and through them, but also the controversy of who they were as people. And last week, we, we spoke on Rahab, and we began this conversation about who God is willing to use. That God isn't looking for a perfect person, but a faithful one. In the narrative of Rahab, that is exactly the kind of person she was. And I want to touch a little bit deeper. I want to go further on that topic tonight of what does faithfulness look like? And more specifically, I want to begin a conversation on the wonder of faithfulness. Because the reality is, is for some reason, God, the Father, through Jesus, has commissioned you and I as his followers to be faithful to bringing others to know him. That God's main objective, his main mission from the very beginning of time has been bringing the outsiders of his family in. And for some reason, he selected you and I, flawed, flaky, difficult people, to do that. And more often than not, God displays his faithfulness through us as people. And the degree to which we are faithful glorifies God. And so I want to get into the how of that tonight. How do we learn to be long-suffering and enduring, not even in our own personal faith journey, but in communicating and bringing others to know Jesus as well? That our short time here on this earth, we're called to do that. Because the reality is, if Jesus just wanted us to simply go to heaven and that's it, not do anything else with our life, our life would end the moment we got saved. The moment you decided to give your life to the Lord, 
you would no longer be on this earth, but he decides to keep us around. There has to be a reason for that. So I want to start by rereading in verse 26. Very simple one verse, and it says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. What you think of when the word angels is said may be different for all of us. For me, I think of one thing, one thing only, my grandma's decor, okay? When the word angel gets brought up, I immediately go to images like this. For some reason, European little naked babies. I don't know why anyone believes that angels look like this. Um, this is like, for me, just angels, like Hobby Lobby, grandma on a Tuesday afternoon kind of vibe, okay? More specifically, when, when we talk about angels and angels are brought up, weird things come into play. Often angels are correlated to like weird sympathy cards. You know what I'm talking about? Like when, when something really tragic happens in your life, and then that one aunt who just talked to you one time when you were five sends you this weird card with an image like this that says, we all have angels watching over us. Sorry you, you, for your loss. It's just like, what? What does this even mean? I don't understand. Or if you're a parent who has lost a child, you're approached with, well, we all need an angel watching over us in heaven. It's like, what kind of backwards theology are you reading about? Where has it ever said that people turn into angels or that angels look like little babies or that it's this poor of taste, besides Michelangelo, I guess? Jumping into this narrative tonight, we can take the naked European baby angels down. Jumping into our narrative tonight, we're hit with this really weird moment. We're hit with a really strange moment where this guy by the name of Philip, one of Jesus' primary disciples, is commissioned by an angel to go into the middle of the desert, okay? If you read that, if you heard that, and you're like, this is a weird story, you're in good company. This is a very random story in the middle of scripture. It's one of those literally God gave me a sign moments. We like to kind of use that for when we get fired, right? It's like, well, I got fired, but God's just opening new opportunities in my life. You know what I mean? Or when we want to break up with somebody, it's like, well, God just kind of gave me a sign. It's like, uh, take responsibility. What we need to understand about our story for tonight is that this is not some weird, cheesy, Hobby Lobby, Hallmark sympathy card. Some of you, you wish it was. But the main premise of the intro to our narrative tonight starts here. And what we could begin to understanding tonight about faithfulness is this first idea that the first step to faithfulness is prayerful trust. The first step to faithfulness is prayerful trust. And before chasing down some vague idea of being more committed to the call God has on your life, like some a weird YouTube video inspirational adrenaline rush, I believe we really need to drill down and establish a foundation on simple steps of what faithfulness begins to look like in you and I's life. And we start here with Philip. We first need to understand what God has called us to as individuals. And to understand what God has called you to, I believe that Jesus made it very clear that communication with God was really emulated in his own life with the Father. And that's established through prayer. Prayer is just simply conversation with God. And so we, we see this story, and we can begin to believe that Philip was just doing his thing, and then randomly an angel just like popped up into his story, told him what to do. He showed up all random-like. Maybe wearing a ton of white. I don't know. I don't know why it's all always depicted like that. Definitely wasn't a little naked baby. 
And then all of a sudden, he's just told by this angel to go do something. And he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to go water the desert, I guess. But before we set the table for that, I want to give you a little fast crash course on angels, okay? And there's three things you need to know about angels uh, from the perspective of Scripture. Your grandma may have something else to say, but this is what the Bible says. The first thing is this thing you need to understand. Humans don't turn into them and vice versa. Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 5 through 6 tells us about that. Number two, they're beings created by God as messengers. Jude 6 tells us about that. Um, I would tell you the original language, but Joshua told me to stop making jokes in the original language because from last week, if you know, you know. Number three, they're most likely common-looking, rarely extremely radiant when appearing to humans. There's a few moments in Scripture where people have visions and they're transported to heaven and see crazy-looking angels. And there's a few moments in the Old Testament where an angel of the Lord shows up and the people are in fear because it's God's presence like manifested through the appearance of an angel. But Hebrews 13, 2, and I, for the longest time, I thought, again, I don't know what it is with, with elderly people and angels. There's just something going on there. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just my life. But I remember hearing the verse of you never know when you're entertaining angels. I'm like, what kind of hallmark BS is that? What does it mean to always be entertaining angels? But the scripture literally tells us you don't know when you're entertaining angels because they could be so common looking and take the normal appearance of humanity, right? So with that being said, every single interaction with angels happening through scripture happened when followers of this Yahweh, this Jesus, were earnestly seeking his path for them. Not randomly waiting for this aha moment, not going into a cave, coming up with some gold tablets. That never happens, okay? It's weird. Uh, and if you ever go to a place and that's mentioned, you should leave. Anyway, here's the most compelling reason as to why I believe this interaction with Philip isn't as mystical and crazy as maybe you want to believe. Because interaction, being commissioned by God, either through an angel or through his gentle stirring and voice in our hearts, in the life of Jesus, always happened through the avenue of prayer. If you want to boil down Jesus' life, it can really be boiled down to four things. Ministry, food, sleep, and prayer. That's my kind of life, okay? Food, sleep, and prayer, I'm good with that, all right? Ministry, we'll see in 10 years. But anyway, this is the life of Jesus. Jesus spent his time doing this. Jesus spent so much time eating with people that his enemies told him, you are fat and you are drunk all the time, okay? That was an insult. He wasn't drunk all the time. They literally said, you're a glutton and a drunkard because he spent so much time eating with people. And so many moments in Jesus' life, he is told, it is told to us that he withdrew to pray to the Father. And so, I don't know about you, but I signed up for following Jesus because I want to be more like him. I heard about him, read about him, was pretty convinced how legitimate he is. And I think, I want to be more like him. Would you agree? Yeah? Okay, good. You're in the right place. And so, wanting to be more like Jesus, I imagine, you want to kind of look at his lifestyle and do some of the stuff he did. Would you agree? Yeah? I think so. See, the first step to faithfulness is prayerful trust. And there's three things we need to understand about emulating the lifestyle of Jesus, hearing the commission of God's call in our life through the avenue of prayer. Jesus always if not mostly when praying, limited distraction. It says that he withdrew to the lonely place. Jesus' prayers were often individual. This is interesting, rarely corporate. Jesus would pray with his disciples, but it wasn't maybe what we may think. 
Jesus wasn't like huddling up with the football team or meeting at the American flag saying like, let's pray. He often actually said, you need to pray individually. Go into your closet. Do not be like the hypocrites standing on the street corners who want to be seen for their good works. Number three, it took first place on his schedule. It says often that Jesus, very early in the morning, the first thing he would do was withdraw to conversate with the Father. And I said three, but here's four. He prayed very specifically. And we know that because he tells us how to pray in the Gospels. He gives us a very specific prayer. But more so, he says, do not babble like the pagans. Do not just start mouthing off random things, but to pray specifically. And so with these four things, I believe we start here. We could do an entire series on prayer. We could go 12 weeks talking on prayer. It's so neglected in the church. But due to time, this is all we got. And I believe we must start here. Before launching ourselves headfirst into what has God called me to for my life or what is it I'm on this earth for, I believe we need to start simply with prayer and conversation with God. And f- establishing these four things in our life can begin this conversation to make sense. There's two parts to this. There's also trust. Prayer is often neglected because it's honestly intangible and awkward for us and seems a little immaterial. It's a little difficult to comprehend. But also believe that in the back of our minds, we may be in fear of praying bold prayers because the Lord might just answer them. I know for myself in my own life, every single time I have prayed this prayer, Lord, whether it's in the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, bring across my path today someone who doesn't know you and allow conversation to happen. I pray that prayer, y'all, and the weirdest stuff starts going on. There's people talking to me at the mechanic. There's people talking to me at the checkout line. I got my AirPods in. I was like, wait, I forgot I prayed that earlier. Oh, oops. Like, I'm supposed to not be in introvert, introvert mode right now. But every single time I pray that, the Lord shows up. Because the reality is, is he's the consistent one. I'm often the inconsistent one. I'm often the one who doesn't want to follow through because I'm not feeling like it that day. And I, when praying, can get scared that he's actually going to follow through on his word. I believe that the faithfulness of a believer is marked by this kind of trust. That we will be willing to step out and trust that the Lord has been faithful to us in the past and he's going to be faithful in the future. That whatever we pray through, that whatever he's commissioned us with, that he'll be faithful to carry us through to the end. But here's something else. When we read this moment, Hear the words of this angel, how it's instructing Philip. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. From where Philip is in a town called Samaria to where we can guesstimate where he's sending him. He literally says, it's literally in the middle of nowhere. He's saying, hey, go walk to Rio Rancho, okay? (laughs) Too real. He literally tells him, go from where you are. Walk 30-something miles, and he tells him nothing else. This is all he gets. He doesn't say what's going to happen. He doesn't say what's going what's to go on. He literally says, go. Often, in the puzzle pieces of God's plan, you and I will not see the full picture. As things are coming together, things are being pieced together, things will be withdrew from us so that we will not be able to see the full picture. More often than not, he's asking of you and I to step out in faith that if he started the good work in us, that he'll be faithful to complete it. So we're in this moment where Philip is commissioned, he's sent out. And what we will find is that God 
sends Philip to a place, not just for the sake of the place, for the sake of a person, because Jesus makes his kingdom known through people. So who is this person God has called Philip to interact with? Let's keep reading at verse 27. He rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. The Greatest Showman was a movie released in 2017. It was a musical with Hugh Jackman. It made a ton of freaking money. It was like $435 million at the box office. Can you imagine that amount of money? It actually is one of the top grossing musicals of all, of all time, okay? I don't watch a lot of musicals. Not really my thing, okay? But I had to research all this for this reason. And if you're not aware of The Greatest Showman, it's this film where Hugh Jackman as the star pretty much retells the story of circus entrepreneur P.T. Barnum. A lot of people couldn't get down with it. It kind of felt like a Wolverine prequel where he sang. It was a little weird, okay? That's just my personal take. But overall, the movie did super well. A ton of people loved it, specifically moms. Like, this was, like, on every mom's soundtrack on all their Instagram stories. I don't know. And in the movie, it's fascinating. P.T. Barnum is displayed as this, like, hardworking, rags-to-riches dad who just loves his family, super honest. And there's this little part of the movie that they kind of skip over, and it's how he utilized people's deformities to display to others for money. Like, they just kind of skip over that in the movie. They're like, don't focus on that. Don't focus on him just exploiting people. Look, he's such a good dad, right? Like, that's literally this movie. And where most of us literally cringe or grimace at this thought, the movie just takes this and runs with it. And um, they begin to actually spin the story that, no, no, P.T. Barham empowered people. He didn't exploit them. He was just elevating people. And scene after scene details what could be seen as exploitation. Uh, but Hollywood did what it always does best. They totally fabricated, fancified a corrupt and greedy person. The true P.T. Barnum, he actually acquired his fame really differently, like terribly differently. Um, his whole career actually began when he bought a supposed 160-year-old enslaved woman and put her on display around the United States. Yeah, not such a good guy. Sorry, Hugh Jackman. If that's not bad enough, one article states, when she died in February 1836, rather than let her go in peace, Barnum had one more act up his sleeve. He drummed up a final public spectacle, hosting a live autopsy in New York Saloon. There, 1,500 spectators paid 50 cents to see the dead woman cut up, revealing that she was likely half her purported age. Welcome to Collective Young Adults. It's great to have you here tonight. But wait, there's more. If that wasn't bad enough, this guy would literally go to families where people were mentally or physically disabled, offer their parents money to pretty much tout them around town in the circuses, pretty much given away by their parents in exchange for income. And most of Barnum's exhibits displayed racial slurs and playing on racial stereotypes. And so all that to say, if you still like Greatest Showman, that's okay, no judgment, great soundtrack, terrible person. But I'm here tonight, I'm not here to highlight P.T. Barnum. Terrible dude, enough said. But there is this strange candidness about the story of this man who profited off of something consistent within culture. That this man understood that no matter where you are or where you go, there will always be those in culture at large 
that don't fit in. There will always be people within a society, a city, a family, an environment that aren't liked, that are marginalized, that are misfits. And more often than not, the reason these people are unliked are for aspects that they most often cannot change about themselves. Environments they grew up in, families they were born into, backgrounds they didn't ask for. And what we can begin to do if we are not careful as people is we can begin to see others only in light of what makes them unlikable. If we are not careful, we can put people into a box where they don't fit our expectations or paradigms, and we can see them for all that they are in just that little box. And if these thoughts towards other people go unchecked, we can begin and slowly believe that the problems with the world are those people that we do not like. And to be honest, we may not like such people for maybe very justifiable reasons. But may we not, especially as followers of Jesus, be misled. That the problems in our world, the problems in our circumstances, the problems in culture, aren't people. If anything, God called humanity good when he made it. In the very beginning of the Genesis account, God crafts humanity in his image. And he says, it is good. So humanity is not the issue, but what is the issue then? Well, it all begins with a lie believed by humanity. That what is wrong with our circumstances, what is wrong with the world, we talked about this last week, that things aren't as they should be. Why is that? Because humanity has believed a lie. And the one who has begun this lie is what scripture calls the adversary or the Satan or Satan in the English language. The one who took the form of a serpent in this Genesis account. And this adversary is working diligently to undermine God's creation. That is why he is working so hard. He is the enemy of humanity. And although I do believe in taking ownership for our actions, that we should own what we do and what we say, we have to be very careful as followers of Jesus to not cross over the line of believing people are the issue. The moment you begin to do that, you don't take on God's lens for humanity. You take on more of Satan's. See, people and their weaknesses and what make them, to our perception, unlikable are not the enemy. And I believe one of the greatest signs of a mature follower of Jesus, of a mature, faithful person, is the one who can draw that line in the sand. Because God has called you and I to reach those outside of his family and bring them in. God has not called you and I to hate others. God has not called you and I to look at somebody for the sum of their mistakes or the sum of the environment they were born into. And the news is, God rarely asks us to be faithful to the likable. Let me explain why we're going here at this moment in tonight. It may be a little weird with cultural context and time removed, but Philip is interacting with somebody who is known to be a eunuch. He is, first of all, sentenced in the middle of nowhere. And then when he gets there, he discerns that the Lord is telling him to join this chariot. There's a wealthy man in it, obviously. At this time, if you had a chariot and you were reading scrolls and you're just kind of hanging out and you're serving in a royal court, you're doing well for yourself. As he pulls up, 
this wealthy official makes known to him, maybe through discerning, maybe through conversation, that he is a eunuch. And so far, in this interaction, in this moment that the Lord has called him to this specific person, him and this guy have nothing in common. They don't have the same ethnicity. It's a Jewish man and a man from Africa. They don't have the same socioeconomic background. Philip was most likely a hardworking, just blue-collar person, and this man comes from royalty. They don't have a, even a similar upbringing. Philip is a man with a family, and a eunuch is someone who has been made so at a young age by having their sexual organs removed. For the sake of watching over royal courts, this would be what servants were asked to have done to them, most often without their consent and most often without them having any say in the matter at a very young age. Now, before I go any further, in our current moment, I want to dispel a myth. Many progressive scholars would look at this story and say that this is a correlation between gender dysphoria today. But the reality is, is that a eunuch at this time would not have chosen this to be done to them, and this would not be an identity for them. That is not what this passage is about, and we may not be tempted, we may be tempted to appropriate cultural moment onto scripture, but that is not what the story is telling. To best understand this eunuch, we must understand two things. Culturally and religiously, how eunuchs were viewed in this time in history. See, the Torah teaching and the practice it communicates that eunuchs were not allowed to be priests. And if you go back to your Old Testament knowledge, priests were the ones who interacted with the very presence of God on behalf of the people. They would conduct sacrifices. They would literally forgive the sins of others on behalf of God by committing and doing ceremonies in the altar in the temple. And Leviticus 21 tells us that anyone with a deformity, eunuchs included, were not allowed to be priests. You had to be born into a specific family and be a specific person. Before we're quick to kind of make the Old Testament law the bad guy in the narrative, we must understand that this is what God required of his people, that he is perfect and holy. It's a little above our 10-pound brain understanding. I don't know why this is the way it is. Yet the contrast in the moment of our narrative tonight is that instead of relying on a person who had to have it all together in order to go on behalf of God, we have already had that fulfilled through Jesus. This is what Hebrew says. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's good news for you and I. See, where there was a wall into entering into unity with God, Jesus made a doorway, and it was through himself. So now, with this moment, there's this religious baggage, there's this cultural baggage as well. And the cultural baggage is this, and here's what the historian Josephus said about such eunuchs. Let those who have been made eunuchs be had in detestation, and do you avoid any conversation with them who have deprived themselves of their manhood? of that fruit of a generation which God has given to men for the increase of their kind, let such be driven away, as if they had killed their children since they beforehand have lost what should procure them. So on one side, we have this individual, circumstances he didn't ask for, a background he was given, and he is almost blocked out from direct engagement with the presence of God. And on the other side, from culture, he's being told that he is subhuman, that he is equivalent to somebody 
who isn't worth being alive. So in our story, this is the person Philip is asked to bring the gospel to. Been previously rejected on every side. And here Philip is to present that the beauty of Yahweh is that he's not entirely closed off. That this God he serves invites the misfits into his family using his followers. That the way God makes his kingdom known and invites those into it is through people. For Philip, the value of this eunuch wasn't placed on their differences. It wasn't placed on all that they didn't have in common. It wasn't placed on all the weirdness that may have been in that tension in that moment. The focus of their interaction was about how they were similar. Two people made in the image of God. See, the book of Acts is just full and full and full of this kind of stuff. That by the power of the cross initiated by Jesus, all of humanity is able to now be brought under one family. That what furthermore used to make us different and enemies and frustrated and focus on the unlikable characteristics about each other, Jesus has brought us in under his redemption. And the reason he does this, the reason from the very get-go that God commissions Philip to go and minister to this one person specifically is that God is crazy about humanity. I don't know what you've heard about the reality of God and his perspective on humanity, but he is so in love with you and I. He is so in love with the shamed. He is so in love with the guilty. He is so in love with the broken. He, he is so enraptured and crazy about humans that no matter what we've done and what we continue to do, he's faithful to us. That, that, that's the premise of tonight, my friends. This is a hard sermon. This is a very direct, serious sermon. I'm not making any jokes in the original language because I want this to get through to you tonight, that God is crazy about you, that he is faithful, that despite what you see and the encounters you experience, he's chasing you down. And you may have done everything to avoid him, may have done everything you can to get out of his way, get out of earshot of him. But he desires you and he desires to know you. And he often makes that known to you and I through each other, through people, relentlessly providing his love to us. So we're in this moment. And the question for you and I for those who would maybe put ourselves in the category of following Jesus, for saying this is very real for us, for saying that Jesus' words are authoritative and that we believe he resurrected from the dead and that he's commissioned his followers to go make disciples. The question for you and I, something we have to really wrestle with, and it's not lighthearted, it's not a decision you make tonight by raising a hand or doing whatever, but the real question we have to ask ourselves is, have we allowed external judgments to dictate the internal work God wants to do? Have we allowed biases and the ways we don't like people dictate what we believe God wants to do in someone's life? I believe a lot of the time due to arrogance, we barricade ourselves against the will of the Lord in our life because we have a set of preferences, we have a set of upbringing that we don't want to corrupt in the name of the message and the controversy of the gospel. 
God rarely asks us to be faithful to the likable. But that's not all in this narrative. Let's close out with this tonight. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he's reading was this. It's out of the book of Isaiah. Like sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. One of the most terrifying experiences that most people want to have nothing to do with, they'd rather, they'd rather be on a cliff face, facing immediate death and doing this in studies it's shown, is public speaking. Something I've been doing for the last 35 minutes, so have some gratitude. Anyway, um, people hate public speaking. People absolutely detest it. People say, man, put me in front of a firing squad. Get me with a shark in the ocean. Don't get me in front of anyone speaking. And for some reason, the sadistic public school system decides, well, children hate this and they're anxious, so let's put them in front of people to public speak anyway. And I remember so many moments in high school and middle school where there would be so many kids having to do some, like, I re do you remember this? It was like five-minute presentation. It's like, oh, man, what am I going to talk about for five minutes? And I was like, we couldn't not stop talking for five minutes anymore. And you're asked to do like a five-minute presentation. I remember seeing so many kids go up to do this presentation. They're shaking, and so many of them getting red in the face and just like crying three minutes in and just being asked to sit down by the teacher and everyone clapping for them. Like, this has happened over and over and over. Everyone's like, what's wrong with Gen Z? It's like, you made us public speak for five years, okay? That's what's wrong with us. But there's something about standing up in front of an audience of people that makes our brains scream, run. Just something in our biology just hates it. I don't know what it is. But I remember in high school these countless presentations and for myself being so nervous and having to put together 10-minute presentations, thinking it was an eternity, absolutely hating it, and then the Lord called me to be a pastor because he has a sense of humor. And for the little time I have done what I'm doing now and what many people do, if you listen to anybody talk about public communication, public speaking, there's, there's, a, there's a tune to something like the difference between a good communicator and a bad communicator is a bad communicator feels like they have to say something where a good communicator has something to say. I believe in this moment, this is the dividing line between when somebody communicates, when someone makes a case for something that is compelling versus boring. That when somebody feels like they're giving a pitch on reality TV as to why you should buy their product versus when somebody communicates and opens up a room when they're truly passionate and caring about the topic at hand. I think the words just come off the page at this moment for Philip. That when he is able to communicate the gospel to this individual, it doesn't come out of a place of, hold on, 
Let me uh, pull up my smartphone and Google what your question is. I don't know. He's not a Bible scholar, theologian, and recites this information to him. But he immediately begins a conversation with him from the outflow of his life and time with Jesus. In closing tonight, I want to leave you with this. Faithfulness doesn't ignore preparation. Here's what I mean by that. When I was originally drafting up the outline for tonight, I started kind of getting into like, okay, we need to like prepare by like doing quiet time. We need to prepare by spending time in prayer. We need to prepare by doing community, doing these things. Those are all good things, and we should be doing those things, memorizing scripture, reading God's word. But I felt the Holy Spirit really begin to turn my heart and shift something in preparing this, that the preparation he's asking of us isn't necessarily our hard work and how good we are and how much we've memorized about him. But in the mundane moments of our life, in, in the seasons that are dry, in the times in our life that aren't ideal, when the dreams aren't cracking up to what they should have been, when our, when our life doesn't look like an Instagram highlight feed, I believe that the Lord is calling us to recognize it's a time of preparation. That in these quiet moments of just obscurity and strangeness, that nobody knows our name, we haven't really accomplished anything significant, we're on our eighth year of school and we don't even have a master's to show for it, when we're at our job and we're kind of grueling and grinding away and nobody cares, that these are moments of preparation, my friend. And I believe that the Lord is calling us into a time to recognize that he's preparing us for something. That for Philip, there's probably so many mundane moments so many moments that weren't glamorous, significant, to be written about. But these were the moments he was faithful in. These were the moments that the Lord was spending time with him, communicating with him. Maybe these are the times that he was able to have conversations with God, away from the noise, away from the craziness. And these mundane moments is where the preparation of God happens in our life. Are you in a dry season right now? Gear up. He's preparing you. Are you not where you want to be? Stay with it. He's preparing you. Does life seem less than ideal? Are you in bad circumstances? You're getting prepared. God is preparing within your heart something to which needs to be brought to somebody else to speak of his goodness and his love. And often we want to discount and discredit those moments. Can't make a TikTok out of them. But the reality is this is where God works in our hearts. Jesus told us, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That the time of your life, the things that are most significant about you aren't external, but what's stirring internally? What you're focusing your energy on, what you're focusing your thought life on, what you're really meditating on and prioritizing your life. And the Lord, I believe, brings us to the desert place, brings us to the insignificant place to prepare us that all of maybe Philip's ministry culminated to this moment, to be able to share the love of God with this man, unhindered by status or flair, truly that he's been prepared. God is not done in our lives. I can say that because you and I still have oxygen. We're still breathing. As far as I know, hopefully no one's dead in the audience. You guys are acting like it. But anyway, we have oxygen in our lungs. We have breath flowing through us that communicates to me God's not done with you and I's life. He hasn't decided to take us yet. 
He could have consumed us in our sleep. He could have allowed that we didn't wake up this morning, but he's given us another day. So what is God preparing you for? Even when it's in an unideal place, even when it's to an unlikable person, he's preparing us. And what he's asking of us is a prayerful trust to lean into the wonder of his faithfulness. Because he's faithful, my friends. Let's stand and pray. I'm going to close this in prayer as we step back into worship. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you endure. That, Lord, as in this story, you were willing to send a man 35-something miles on feet <laughs> to the middle of nowhere to minister to one person. Lord, you tell us in your word that you're willing to leave the 99 for the one, that those who have gone astray, you still recognize and know. Father, I pray over the brokenhearted tonight. I pray over the ashamed. I pray over those who, when talking about unlikable people in their life, they don't even like themselves. So, Lord, I pray that tonight they may wake up to the reality that you're not done with them, that you want to be so faithful to them, that you're a faithful, good Father, empower us as we follow you. For those of us who claim you as Savior, empower us to look past the external, shallow, stupid things in life. Look past the politics, to look past the disagreements, to look past the arguments, and to see people as you see them, that people are not the issue. But the lie that we have believed from the beginning of time is... May not that pride creep up in our hearts, and if it does, Holy Spirit, correct us. Correct us to be a generation faithful to what you've called us to. Please, Lord, pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's worship. How are you guys doing tonight? Can you hear me okay?